Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. Time to plant. And a time to pluck up what has been planted. A time to kill. And a, and a time, time to, to heal. A time to break down. And a, and a time, time to build up. up. A time to weep. And a, and a time, time to laugh. A time to mourn. And a time to dance. A time to throw away stones. And a time to gather stones, stones together. together. And a, time a time to embrace. And a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep. And a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence. And a time to speak. A time to love. And a time to hate. No, never a time to hate. A time for war. No, never a time for war. And a time for peace. God has made everything suitable for its time. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away. God has done this so that all should stand in awe. Let us us worship worship God. God. The scripture reading for today comes from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his, his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, For so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Eternity is neither endless time nor the opposite of time. It is the very essence of time. When I was a child, I went to the state fair and collected one of those enormous pinwheels, 
every color and the rainbow on it. And I discovered that if you spun it fast enough, if you stuck it out the car window or stuck it into a stiff breeze, then it would spin and everything would blend into one great color, white, which is the essence of all the colors of the rainbow melded together. If you spend time fast enough, our scriptures tell us, past, present, and future merges into a single timelessness or eternity, which is the essence of every moment combined into one. As human beings, we know time as a passing of distinct events and a progression of which everything, including our own lives, come to an end. As human beings, we know occasions when we stand outside of events, and we can see their meaning clearly. Sometimes an event occurs, a birth, a death, a marriage, a moment at work, some experience of unusual pain or beauty or fulfillment or joy, through which we get an inkling of what life is truly all about and what our lives are about. And this glimpse of everything involves not just the present, but the past and future too. We are, as the Gospels and all of Scripture tell us, inhabitants of time, and we stand on every moment with one foot in reality and one foot in eternity. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that God inhabits time and stands with one foot poised in reality in order to guide and shape all of us as human beings. But the part of time where the Lord stands most particularly is Jesus the Christ, and in Christ we catch a glimpse of what eternity is all about, about what God is like, and what we ourselves are all about as well. We call the celebration of the Magi's visit to Christ, to the Christ child as Epiphany, which just means appearance or manifestation. It was another time, an unveiling of sorts when something that was hidden is revealed. Epiphany is God coming to stand firmly in this beautiful and troubled world at this instant in time, making eternity known to all the world in the person of Jesus. It is not an abstraction. It is a person who takes up human form. Here the whole world, east and west and north and south, can find out what God is like. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all, the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The early church used these words to refer to the incarnation, to God's self-disclosure in Christ. Talked about it like this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen God's glory. This is what incarnation means. This is what the season of Christmas of Advent is all about. This is the bedrock on which Epiphany stands in our life flow forward. It is untheological, it is unsophisticated, it is undignified. But it is, according to Christianity, the core of our faith. All the religions and philosophies that deny the reality or significance of the substance of life, the material which is earthbound, are themselves denied. 
Moses, remember at the burning bush, was told to take off his shoes because the ground on which he stood was holy ground. So incarnation means that all ground is holy ground because God not only made it, but walked on it and ate and slept and died upon it. Epiphany is the shepherds recognizing the Messiah. It is the Magi acknowledging the King of glory. It is Peter's expression, you are the Christ. It is the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, having had their eyes opened at the resurrection. It is any time our eyes are opened to the manifestation of God who is coming to us in Jesus Christ. All the talk of epiphanies and salvation and glorious manifestations makes me wonder how it is that we talk about this in the world today. How it is that we bear witness to this God who has come to be among us. Isaiah says, arise and shine for your light has come. We rightly know that there are good ways and less effective ways to talk about God in our lives and in our work, in our relationships, in our families. We know that it's not helpful to get in someone's face and shout at them, but there's still people who do. Used to be a man who would come to the campus of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill where I was a student. He came every spring and fall and he came dressed rather strangely in a kilt and all kinds of strange clothes and he drug with him an enormous cross some 12 feet tall. He would stand on the sidewalk in front of University Presbyterian Church there and basically shout at the crowds and the students. If you came near him, he would look at you straight in the eye and tell you to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he came with lots of finger pointing and arm waving and it didn't go over very well, as you can imagine. One of my roommates appointed himself to go to the man and speak to him and said that, you know, this style of worshiping and of witnessing to the Christ is not going over very well here in Chapel Hill. Maybe you ought to go over to Durham and talk to the students at Duke. <laughs> I think that he did. How we manifest the glory of God is one of the greatest mysteries and also one of the core reflections of who we are. Here in the beginning of this miraculous epiphany story, Matthew, though, sounds an ominous note about the Christ coming into the world. He writes, in the time of King Herod, words that open our gospel story make an abrupt turn from the soft glow of the child in the manger to a harsher reality. The holy time of God has intersected everyday life. The time of Herod has come. This is now a political crisis. Jesus, the eternal child of the God of creation, is born in Herod's time. A story that shapes all of time is set against a moment in which rulers rule assuming that they determine the story that constitutes time itself in history. Those who rule just assume that time is determined by their power and by their agenda. But we know that Herods are seldom as powerful as they think, and that Herod is king only because it pleases the Romans to have him rule over this troublesome part of Palestine. He is a pawn used by Rome 
Jesus, born of Mary and Joseph, lives in an occupied land, a small outpost on the very edge of a vast empire. How could they know that this man would pose the most decisive political challenge that the empire would ever face? Rome knew how to deal with enemies. You either killed them or co-opted them. But how do you deal with a movement, a peaceable kingdom of mercy and justice that refuses to believe that violence will determine the path of history? The movement that Jesus begins is formed by by people, people who believe that they have all the time in the world, that they are guided and strengthened by God's patience and providence, and they may challenge the world's impatience and violence by the powers of birth and presence and cross and resurrection. There was, as our young people witnessed, an ancient teacher of wisdom that we know from the book of Ecclesiastes. This wise person understood time differently than perhaps you or I. He wrote after the Babylonian exile a period of great trauma in Israel, an experience that taught the people that their human lives would not just be all a path of power and of prestige and of wealth and of prominence. Some see the book of Ecclesiastes as somewhat cynical, and there is truth there. But I prefer to see the writer of Ecclesiastes as a wild-eyed realist who knows that life and war and peace move on. All is vanity, the writer of Ecclesiastes says some 38 times in the book. I see him as a practical theologian who is ready and willing to guide us into a future if we will but listen. So, with the wisdom of this writer in one hand, with the knowledge that there will be war and peace, don't think for a minute that our Gospels condone either. The writer is just condoning and mentioning reality. Matthew will not let us forget that Christ came into a world embroiled in hatred and war, with injury and with mourning. Jesus came to show us the way to a higher ground, and he gives us directions to this peaceable kingdom, which God has originally intended and which he has now come to restore. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus announces. He came to defeat all that would separate us from God and from one another. We need to know what time it is and that God stands firmly fixed in this moment, looking about for signs of compassion, of welcome and hospitality, of justice, that God stands committed to the embrace of all who are vulnerable, who live on the streets, who are on the move, immigrants and refugees, and welcomes them all. Like you, having sat through what only seems to be a bajillion Christmas pageants, It's hard to banish the image of a trio of reluctant dads pressed into service and wearing their bathrobes and Burger King crowns, trying to look as wise and magnificent as possible. The Magi of Matthew's story would have been exotic novelties in an out-of-the-way place like Bethlehem. Who were these travelers from faraway Persia who studied the stars and discerned the fates and futures in the night sky? Who could be less likely 
to have discovered the Christ child. Their mystical craft, handed down from the ancient Sumerians, predated Moses. Judaism and then Christianity viewed their arts as deceptive, even dangerous. But instead of waiting expectantly for some Messiah, they were taking notes on the comets, the constellations, and the planetary movements. They are the ones who come to worship the Messiah. What did they see? A supernova, Jupiter and Saturn in combination? Did they see a comet? How could a star point to a particular house in a small village nine miles from Jerusalem? Medieval writers believed that the Magi saw really a bright angel, the one they mistook for a star, and that this star, this angel, led them through the desert to the manger for the Christ to be born. There is also the classic moment in the irreverent Monty Python, The Life of Bryant, when the people are looking for the star to find the house where the star has settled and they can't discern if it's this house or that house and they bumble about in great confusion and in great comedy. Matthew does not endorse astrology. Instead, he cleverly points to the power of God, the power that first manipulates nature itself and then brings immigrants and strangers into the fold, the first to be brought into the community of faith. Augustine wrote that Christ was not born because the star shone forth, but it shone forth because Christ was born. God is amazing. God is the love that moves the stars, Dante writes. We are not the star-crossed victims of faith, Matthew tells us. The newborn Jesus is both our present and our future destiny. So who is the king, we might ask? Herod isn't, though he brandishes all the tacky symbols of kingship. He was one of history's most hysterical despots. The Magi were lucky enough to get away with their lives after coming to say to his face, Where is the king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. The irony was as thick as it was when the adult Jesus was asked by Pontius Pilate, Are you a king? When the first Christians proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, the implication was that Caesar was not. Jesus was not a subversive military figure trying to topple the empire, but he was king, and Herod and Pilate and Caesar were just pretenders. If Jesus is king, then there is something upside down and just plain unkingly about his royal bearing. Poor fishermen and peasant women composed his court. His standard was a cross, and if he were to post or tweet, he would shower the people with unwavering compassion and grace. No wonder Herod was troubled. All who cling to power, all who are possessed with a love for dominance and harassment, all who refuse to give up positions of power and influence, who hold on to their essential whiteness or reward, are headed for a tumble before this Christ child. The historian Mark Knoll, assessing how Christianity spread widely across the continents, notice how it is that Christianity alone can take on the forms of local culture while it retains its core message. But it also, he says, challenges reforms 
and humanizes the cultural values of each place. You do not have to stop being American or Japanese or German. You don't have to stop being who you are in order to become a Christian. Instead, every person in every land finds rich resources in Christianity that are fitted for their own cultural situation. The gospel comes to people exactly where they are, where we are this moment. It is by nature a religion of nearly infinite flexibility because it has been revealed in a person of absolutely infinite love. Think about the Magi's gifts, though. They're not child-appropriate. They're signs and symbols of the grandeur of all of the creation of God being collected at the feet of the Lord of all. It was Isaiah the prophet who speaks of all the kings and nations flowing to worship this one child. The Magi didn't stop and build a mansion in Bethlehem to stay near the one that they had worshipped, they had served and adored. And you wouldn't need to be warned in a dream not to revisit old Herod. Yet an angel, perhaps the very one who flew so brightly, leading them to Bethlehem in the first place, warned them of this imminent danger. And so it was they departed by another way. Quite simply, I think they returned by an evasive route to avoid Herod. But could Matthew also be offering us a tantalizing clue about those who have met the Christ child this Christmas, this Epiphany? Nothing is ever the same. You can't take the old way anymore. You need new maps and a new GPS. T.S. Eliot, the poet, imagined the thoughts of the Magi once that they had made their way back home. We've returned to our places, he wrote, but we're no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. Jesus does not make my life more comfortable Jesus does not help me fit into this moment and succeed. In this place, we're no longer at ease in a world that is not committed to this Jesus. We notice all the false gods and all the inappropriate paths. We see the royal pretenders. Nothing is the same. Nothing comes easily. A strange, unfamiliar road is now our path, but it is a road that's going somewhere up and out of the darkness and into the light of the God of hope. Amen and amen. You are holy, O God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. He was born to dwell with us, full of grace and truth. In him we have seen your glory. Baptized by John in the Jordan, he lived for you, spoke your truth, showed your love, and gave himself for others. In his death on the cross, he overcame death. Rising from the tomb, he raised us to eternal life and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, that we may be one with all who share this feast, united in ministry in every place. As this bread is Christ's body for us, 
Send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. Illumine our hearts, O God, with the radiance of Christ's presence, that our lives may show forth his love in this weary world. Teach us to befriend the lost, to serve the poor, to reconcile with our enemies, and to love our neighbors. Keep us faithful in your service until Christ comes in final victory, and we shall feast with all your saints in the joy of your eternal realm. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ. In the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor are yours, Almighty God, now and forever. Hear us as we join our voices in praying together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.